On the 15th of October in 1555, um, an English bishop named Nicholas Ridley sat in his prison cell in Oxford. He knew that the following day uh, that he would be hauled from that cell to a stake that had already been prepared uh, with wood surrounding it. And in the centre of that city, and you can still go there today and see the Martyr's Cross, he would be strapped to his good friend and burned for his Christian faith. On the night of the 15th uh, of October 1555, Nicholas Ridley's brother offered to come and stay with him in just the last few hours of his life. And the bishop refused, saying he was going to bed at a normal time and everything would be fine, basically. And he slept as quietly as he ever did throughout his life. And you've got to ask the question, how, how does that happen? Well, I think Psalm 4 will help us answer that. Nicholas Ridley was a, a bishop and a scholar and a teacher. He was in the prime of his ministry. He was a prominent, what we call a reformer. The church was reforming in this country. He was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing God through him and many others like him free this country from the bonds of the Catholic religion. But then history shows us, doesn't it, Queen Mary took the throne. We know her as Bloody Mary. She was a staunch Catholic and she rounded up the reformers and slaughtered them one by one. A few in Oxford, a few in Kidderminster, and many, many, many in the city of London where so many of you work. Ridley went from a position of incredible security and success to being burnt alive And that was a very, very quick transition. There was a sudden turnaround in his circumstances. And we've seen that in Psalms 1 to 3, haven't we? If you remember, if you glance back, if you want to, Psalm 1 and 2, we get the assurance that God knows the way of the righteous and that the world has been given the anointed one, the Messiah. Here in the Psalm, King David, only for that world to just fall apart and collapse in Psalm 3. We see there that the Messiah, King David, is being ousted from his throne and his rule and the treachery is from his son, Absalom. And we see at the heading of Psalm 3 that David is fleeing for his life. Psalm 4, many agrees, fits with that situation. The themes kind of go through it. The language is kind of similar Psalm 3, though, is a, is a prayer of David's in the morning. And Psalm 4 is a prayer of David's in the evening. And you'll see the references to the evening time. Look at verse 4 and verse 8. Hence why you get Psalm 4 always within, if you go to the more traditional liturgies and services within the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church. Psalm 4 is always a, a prayer of evening prayer. And this song of David, this Prayer has been considered useful throughout history for God's people in public worship. Hence the, uh, the little introduction there for the director of music with stringed instruments. It was to be used by Israel and has been by the church ever since. It's a prayer that will correct our thinking and increase our faith. And practically, if our circumstances change, uh, if things look bleak, it will help us sleep something Nicholas Ridley knew all too well. 
And so what do we find in this uh, evening prayer? What will, in the midst of struggle and trial, what will let us sleep? What gives us peace of mind that we can close our eyes and, and rest our weary heads? Well, three things, very quickly. Firstly, David, look what he does. He depends on God. Cast your eyes down with me to, to just verse 1. But if I can, before I just get there, two quick points of introduction, which I think may be helpful. Because if you think, as you go through, many scholars, as they begin, they kind of go, I'll go Psalm 1 to 51. It's generally kind of book 1, and sorry, 40. And, and then they go, oh, that's just miserable. And, and, and so the first 40 Psalms are just go, rule this downturn. And they get more misery, more misery, more distress. And it's, it's hard work. Can I encourage you, don't zone out of this. Just because your life is easy. And let's just be honest. Many of your lives here are easy. Thank God for that relative ease. You know, if your regular train is cancelled, if you rip your suit on the way to work, yes, that may be called a sudden turnaround of, of circumstances for you personally uh, that day. But I don't think you should parallel that with Psalm 3 and 4, by the way. Life is easy for many of us, and that is a huge blessing. Thank God for that. This here, though, is life-changing. This is life-threatening. Psalms don't deal with the trivial, by the way, like a late train or a suit ripping. But recognise that they will prepare you for trials to come, challenges to come. So please, if life is easy, just don't kind of go, oh, it's not for me. Secondly, if or when you go through tough times, recognise your temptation as you put your head on your pillow at night. The temptation is always to brood, isn't it? On probably past wrongs, injustices in your life. Why? Not fair, so on. Or present perils. Our struggles so can, can so easily kill our sleep and we can become consumed with what we can do, with what we can change. And I think what we'll see here is David modelling an alternative that we, we, we would be wise to replicate. And so what does he do? Firstly, he depends on God. And it's urgent and it's confident prayer. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. I think I've probably got the tone right there. Prayer, of course, is the most practical way that we depend on God. As adopted children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, let's not overlook just the privilege of being able to speak to the creator, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God. It's a strange joy, isn't it, that we can, we, you and I, approach God in prayer, and it's in even stranger joy that he answered our prayer according to his will. David, a sinner like me, comes to God, the righteous one, who is his covenant, um, who is co um, he is faithful to his covenant, and he hears our prayers. And look at what does, what, did, what does David pray? He cries out for relief from his distress. And as I said before, that's probably most likely his distress that he's feeling as his son with thousands upon thousands is 
vying for his blood. Our troubles, I hope you know this, either drive us from God or to God because they expose the true foundations of our hope in life. And as a result, our distresses often have that refining effect, and I hope they do, they should do, of helping us realise that God is the only place where we can find a sure and a certain hope in this life. Have you ever found that? Have you ever got to the, what you consider the lowest point, the lowest ebb of your life where you think, oh, God, where do I go now? What are the options? None. It all looks so awful. Have you ever got there? Well, David rightly turns to God at that moment. Notice we don't approach God because of anything that we merit as well. We approach God in, in prayer on what, what's the basis of our approaching God. You see it? It's his mercy. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. That smacks the arrogance out of any prayer, doesn't it? Because we've all been enemies of God, Ephesians tells us. We're dead in our rebellion against him. We have nothing to bring to the table. There's nothing that we are or we have that can impress God. Look at our spiritual CVs. There's nothing there. We come to God in prayer and it's a gift from God and mercy and unmerited kindness. But it's good to remember, isn't it, that however big our distress, however difficult our circumstances, our trials, those tough things that you may be going through or may go through in the future, none of that covers your sin. And that is so important to remember in a victim kind of culture that we live in. We must remember that our rebellion against God makes us a criminal. We're the perpetrator. We can only come before God because he is the merciful one. Don't play the victim before God. It will never work. So what has David done in his prayer? Well, even in this first verse, look what he's done. He's declared God's character. He's remembered God's mercy. He's stated his distress. His prayer, is, he's, he's thinking about who he is, what he is, what his needs. But he's mainly thinking about who God is. It's thoughtful. And yet it's urgent as well, isn't it? I wonder what your praying is like. Prayer is not a, a kind of a technique of kind of how we progress spiritually. Prayer is worship. It's honouring to God, but it is both intelligent and it is desperate. Firstly then, depend on God in prayer. Secondly, accept God's truth. This is the main body of uh, the psalm, isn't it? And David isn't, it doesn't stop praying here. The song continues, if you like. But he now prays and he's teaching a bunch of people around him in and through his prayer. And firstly, he addresses those who are slandering him. Verse 2, how long will your people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. And the Lord hears when I call to him. Oh, he's challenging there, isn't he? He's challenging his, his opponents. The, the deluded, godless culture in which he lives is seeking to undermine him as the, the faithful servant there. Literally, that means the covenant one of the covenant God, which is in the original, in the verse one. 
Now, of course, David is God's anointed and has a special relationship with God. He's the covenant king. But, but notice the principle here, because there's, there's stuff for us to learn. David is under attack. He's in distress. And what does he do? The best weapon he knows to, is to remember how God regards him. And how he is in relationship with God. And he holds on to what God has said about him. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. That is, he accepts the truth from God. Firstly, in rejecting, the, the, in a sense, the thinking of the godless accusers around him, he then accepts the truth from God. They were rejecting God's rule, uh, sorry, David's rule, his glory, verse 2, and therefore God himself. And he rejects that. Accepting God's truth firstly begins with the rejection of everything else. And he accepts the truth revealed by God. One of the great early church leaders, uh, early church fathers, John, uh, John uh, Chris, I can never say his surname, Chrysostom, that's it. He was known as a, one of the most powerful preachers of that era. He was actually known as Golden Mouth. I quite like that as a title, wouldn't you? Like, on your headstone, Golden Mouth. Brilliant. But when he was asked what verse he would preach more than any other in his ministry, he, he responded saying, Psalm 4, verse 2. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Well, 15 year, 1,500 years have come and gone since Golden Mouth last preached, but things haven't changed, have they? Like David, we need to pray to be distinct, rejecting the thinking of the world around us that is deluded and chases after false gods, of the false gods of wealth and prosperity and, and so many other idols that we see around us. Before we accept God's truth, we must firstly reject, reject how others view us. We are God's loved, precious, chosen, covenant children, listened to, cherished, known. And we need to accept the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. But belief, true belief, true faith in God, of course, works itself out. We accept the truth, don't we, by doing it. James, uh, the letter there, is very helpful in that. But look at the instruction, therefore, of verse 4. Tremble and do not sin when you're on your bed. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. You see what David's doing? Yes, he's turning to another group now. He, he, he first addresses those who are slandering him, but now David, David seems to be addressing a bunch of angry people, basically. And they seem to be his supporters. Likely they've experienced an injustice. They're angry about it. They're probably angry that Absalom is coming after David. And they probably are, you know, really supportive of David. But yeah, David wants to instruct them here. The tremble word is literally the word angry. It's disappointing that this translation has turned it there, but listen how verse 4 reads, therefore. Be angry and do not sin. The contemporary church would be wise to listen to this so much. Because you've got to ask the question, how do you do that? How can you be angry and not sin? 
Well, the last bit of the verse really helps with it, doesn't it? When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. It's not saying anger is wrong, there's an injustice. You should be angry at the injustices of the world. You should be seething when a local minister abuses his position. But, when angry, shut your mouths and examine yourself. That's what he's saying. When you're on your bed, search your hearts first. Be silent. Positively, in verse 5 then, he instructs them to entrust themselves to God. But the immediate response of verse 4 is so critical. This is such an important thing. We must be careful that when our passions are high, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, or whether it's lust, or whatever it is, when our passions are high, we all have the tendency to vent, to lash out, to immediately respond. And here we see the opposite. David is urging his angry supporters to keep quiet and to examine themselves, to talk to themselves. Like Proverbs says so many times, consider your ways and be wise. Uh, search your hearts in silence, practically on your beds, he's saying. So it's very practical, isn't it? That is, finish, finish each day when you put your head on the pillow with some self-examination. Give yourself time each night to reflect on each part of your day. Analyse, self-examine, Where do you lack self-control? Know yourself and work out where you need to guard yourself. As you go to bed, of course you want to go through what you can thank God for. That would be a right and appropriate thing to do. But likewise, examine yourself. Where were you needlessly defensive in a conversation? Where are you out of control in your life? I guess most of us would do well to just shut up more and listen more and speak to ourselves. Consider your ways and be wise. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm not going to mention anything on this, but isn't it interesting that social media is the complete opposite? Be careful that you don't justify repression of anger and keep everything locked up. I know all you kind of so, kind of psychoanalyzing what I'm saying here right now, but there we go. No, we're not. That's not where we're going. Don't lock everything up inside. That can be so destructive. This is just an acknowledgement that we often to we often struggle to control our anger and our great passions. I'll give you an example. How many times? How many of you here? have written a fiery email to a colleague or to a family member or to a friend and clicked and immediately regretted it. Give yourself time, speak into your hearts on your beds and shut your mouths. Keep quiet for a while. Let's move on. Verse 6. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. And you can see how low these people have got. They're absolutely despairing at the injustice and everything that's going on. Who will show us good? Who will bring prosperity there in verse 6? And their reaction is the reaction of so many of us, isn't it? When trouble comes our way, we find ourselves in distress. It's so easy to kind of fly out, isn't it? Oh, it's just not fair. 
Well, what does David do? Well, he takes the prayer that the priests in the tabernacle used and he prayed that they prayed over Israel. And you can see that in number six, if you want, verse 24 to 26. Let me read that to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Paraphrased by David here. Let the light of your face shine on us. That is, he's in distress and he seeks God's favour. But he seeks God's presence. He calls out to those who are overwhelmed that they would know that God is God. And that God is close. It's really interesting that there aren't many answers in this prayer, are there? David prays and warns his oppressors. David prays giving counsel to his angry supporters. And David prays in concern and trusts that those overwhelmed in their distress would know the, the close presence of God in their lives. But in each prayer, David accepts the truth of who God is. He just counsels with God's wisdom and trusts in God's faithfulness because he's the covenant Lord. His prayers, you see, never stray from the truth of God revealed in God's word. And if you like, you get to the end here, and, that, and basically that's the end of the teaching of the psalm. It does end, and it ends with now David you know, it's directly addressing God again. Let's look how he prays as he closes. Third point, experience God's joy and peace. Verse seven: Fill my heart with joy, and when their grain and new wine abound, uh, fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. See that in the middle of his distress and his doubt, David can pray with great joy. He prays for his heart to be filled in the, in that way. There's argument about the tense of that, but note a few things about the joy. The joy is from God. God, you fill me, he prays. The joy is internal. It comes to his heart. The joy is abundant. He, he is praying that he'll be filled. Overflowing, you might say. And that notice the joy is independent from his circumstances. He seems to contrast his oppressors who, whose joy is dependent on new wine and, and the grain and all the stuff that they've got. David's joy is independent of stuff. This is the deep-seated joy that only the Christian can know. It doesn't come from us. It isn't sustained by us. It isn't dependent on whether, we, whether our lives are easy or that we're going through a trial. It's a joy that leads where? To peace. Which is what we see in verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Like before in Psalm 3, verse 5, David concludes he can lie down in sleep. It doesn't matter, the circumstances are awful, but still then he can put his head on the pillow because he trusts God and his present safety is assured. Like before, David in this psalm is, of course, foreshadowing God's greatest son, namely Jesus Christ. Because like David, he was squeezed and by powerful people maligning his glory, which led him to a shameful death on the cross. But have you noticed as we've gone through how all of this is pointing to Jesus? Look at verse 3. He's 
the better, the true and better faithful servant of verse 3. He's also the one who calls his people, like David in verse 3, to know and accept the truth and to flee from sin in verse 4. Jesus is the one who trusted God and, and we to follow his example, as we see in verse 5. Jesus, like David, answers the doubts of verse 6 as he comes to presence himself amongst us and he's now here in our hearts by his Spirit. And despite the godless sometimes prospering, as we see in verse 7, we can echo this prayer, knowing the joy of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings the eternal peace. A peace meaning that we can lay our heads down confident that in Christ we are safe eternally in his hands. Bishop Nicholas Ridley um, slept well the night before his death. He knew he knew of the terrible pain that he would endure as the flames would engulf him, bound to that stake in the centre of Oxford in 1555. But he knew more presently in his heart and his mind. Psalm 4 verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone make me dwell in safety, Lord. Our circumstances can change in a moment. A life of ease can become a life of trial and distress in the blink of an eye. Thank God for relative ease. But keep this prayer in your mind and close to your heart because you'll be surprised how a lack of joy and peace can come and bite you when you least expect it. Depend on God. Cry out to him in urgent prayer. Accept the truth of and wisdom of God's word. And then, and only then, can you experience the eternal divine joy and peace that comes from dwelling in the safety of our covenant king. Oh, I hope you know him. His name is Jesus. To him be the glory. Let's pray. What a joy and what a privilege it is, our Heavenly Father, that we can call to you, despite your righteousness and our rebellion and unrighteousness, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, whose imputed righteousness we know as we put our faith in him on the cross. You will hear our prayer and you will answer according to your will. So we thank you, our Lord and God, for your mercy, for your kindnesses to us day by day by day, but supremely, the kindness that we know in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we respond, both in prayer and in our lives, with a heart filled with joy. Fill our hearts with joy, I pray. And such that in peace, we can lie down and sleep, trusting that we are safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.